You're listening to audio from Grace Family Church. If you'd like to explore more resources or give to our ministry, please visit us at gracepsl.org. All right, you ready? Daniel, you know the book. Daniel, open up to Daniel chapter 4 this morning. We are, uh, we're actually going to spend a couple weeks uh, on this chapter because there is so much to, to glean from it. And um, we're going to approach it from two different perspectives. Next week, we're going to approach this chapter from a cultural perspective and look at how it explains what's going on in our society today. But this morning, we're going to approach this chapter from a personal perspective and, uh, and how it applies to our life, how it speaks to, to our hearts. Chapter 4 is the last of the cycle of events in God's dealings with the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, chapter four, it's very familiar to chapter two because it centers around a dream. But it's very different from chapter two and also chapter three in that Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are not in any personal danger as they have been for the last two chapters. Instead, the focus here in this chapter is on Nebuchadnezzar and on God's dealings with Nebuchadnezzar as told by Nebuchadnezzar, not Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar is speaking now in Daniel chapter four. Basically, Daniel four is Nebuchadnezzar's personal testimony of his third encounter with God written in retrospect. And it had such a profound effect upon him that he wanted everybody to know about it. And so he does what only a a few people in the world could do at that time. He sends a letter to the world. Verse one, King Nebuchadnezzar, to the nations and peoples of every language who live in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. Again, this is the, the third encounter that Daniel, or that uh, Nebuchadnezzar has with God. In his first encounter, remember, um, he was impressed with the superior wisdom of Daniel's God. But he, he didn't repent. He remained his prideful self. And then in his second encounter at the fiery furnace, he was impressed with the power of Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego's God. Nonetheless, he remained his prideful self. But in this third encounter, and this is 32 years after the first encounter, he's not simply impressed with God. He's humbled by the sovereign grace of God. And he writes about it here. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. And I had a dream that made me afraid. And I was lying in my bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. And so he calls for all the magicians and the astrologers and the wise men to help him interpret this dream. But again, they cannot do it. And so finally, he calls for Daniel to come and interpret the dream. And he tells Daniel the dream, and then he's going to ask for the interpretation. So he says to Daniel now, these are the visions I saw while lying in bed. Verse 10, I looked, 
And there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. And under it the wild animals found shelter. The birds lived in its branches. From it every creature was fed. In the visions I saw while lying in bed, I looked, and there before me was a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, cut down the tree and trim off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but let the stump and the roots bound with iron and bronze remain in the ground in the grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. And let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man. And let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass by for him. The decision is announced by the messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth. And he gives them to anyone he wishes and he sets over them the lowliest of people. Now, this is no ordinary dream. I mean, I think that's obvious. It's not something that simply comes from Nebuchadnezzar's mind. This is, this is a dream that comes from holy God. And secondly, it's a, it's a horrifying dream. It terrorizes him. Here's, it freaks him out. It makes him scared. And here's a guy that really has nothing to be afraid of whatsoever. Just the opposite is true, in fact. Everyone is afraid of him. He's the most powerful man on the earth. At that time, he's unlimited authority and dominion. He was an absolute monarch over a very vast kingdom that he had expanded through his own military genius, after which he rebuilt and expanded the most wonderful and beautiful capital city, Babylon. History tells us that Babylon was a, an engineering marvel. It measured 14 miles by 14 miles square. That's larger than New York City proper. It was bisected by the mighty Euphrates River. One side of the city on one, the other side of the city on the other. And there was a bridge that was 660 feet long and 30 feet wide that spanned the river. The city had two sets of inner walls in addition to the outer walls, were, which were one of the wonders of the ancient world. They were 350 feet high, 87 feet thick, with 250 watchtowers that rose 100 feet higher. 150 gates of solid brass, outside of which was an extremely deep moat. The city was stocked with provisions to withstand a 20-year siege, making it virtually impenetrable, unconquerable. I mean, it was the safest place in the world. In addition to being the most formidable city in the ancient world, it was also the most beautiful city. It was laid out in squares with beautiful trees, beautiful three- and four-story houses lining the streets, huge parks, beautiful gardens, and one of the most famous gardens ever in the world, the Hanging Gardens, which were one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. These unique gardens were built on 
terraces that were supported by large trees, which gave the appearance that they were floating or hanging in the air, and all of that in the middle of a desert. This is Iraq. I mean, it was an engineering marvel. Complementing all the beautiful gardens were many magnificent buildings and ornate temples, and everything had gold on it. It was called the Golden City. And then there were several palaces that Nebuchadnezzar had built for himself, and he kind of just moved from one to the other to the other. And yet, with all that power, with all that wealth, with all that success, with all that security, we find him terrified. I mean, here's somebody at the absolute pinnacle of power, the kind of power that only a handful of people in human history have known. And his life is falling apart anyway with all of that. And at the end of it all, he basically says, I'm glad it happened. And he praises God for basically having stripped him of everything. And the reason is that, in retrospect, he realized that there was a cancer in him that had to be removed, a spiritual cancer that had to be removed in order for his soul to be saved. And what was that spiritual cancer? Pride. He says so in the last line. Verse 37, And those who walk in pride, he, God, is able to humble. Now it's important to realize that this is not only the hist historical account of uh, God humbling and, and saving one of history's greatest megalomaniacs. It, it's a revelation of what God does to save us from our pride and conform us to the image of Christ. And in case you're, you're thinking this morning, well, this probably won't apply to me very much today, I, I want you to know that in the biblical diagnostic manual, the first indication of the presence of pride is the denial of its presence. <laughs> I rest my case. This is something we all struggle with, and I, what I want you to see this morning is more than you realize, but I also want you to see the hope we have in Jesus for defeating pride. So four points this morning. Number one, the effect of pride. Number two, the heart of pride. Number three, the consequence of pride. And number four, the saving from pride. So first of all, the effect. Now, when Nebuchadnezzar first received the dream, the second dream, it wasn't like his, his first dream. He should have been able to discern this. I mean, that wasn't the case with his first dream because in, remember the first dream, there was the, the head of gold, there was the chest of silver, then there was the, the, the thighs of bronze, and then the legs of iron and fe feet of iron and clay. Now, you don't know what that is, right? Somebody has to tell you what those things represent. He needed a divine interpretation of that. But the second dream is different in that a general interpretation would have been fairly easy, and here's why. In the ancient world, great World rulers were often symbolized in ancient literature as large trees, if you will, with canopies spreading over their kingdom. So it should have been rather obvious to Nebuchadnezzar that he was the tree. And then if so, if he knew that, then it should have been obvious that the command to cut down that tree 
would have easily been understood as divine judgment and the loss of his kingdom, but he doesn't see it. He doesn't see it because of three things that pride does. Number one, pride blinds you to the reality of God. Pride makes you spiritually blind. Pride makes it where you can't really see yourself as you really are before God, and you can't see God for who He really is. It blinds you. It blinds you from perceiving the things of God. Nebuchadnezzar cannot see. He cannot discern what should be obvious from the dream, and so he asked Daniel to tell him. Now, the moment he tells Daniel the dream, Daniel just like almost, I guess, turns white like a sheet. I mean, he is stunned because he knows that this is very, very, very bad news for Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, he has to kind of be motivated a bit by Nebuchadnezzar. You know, kind of, Daniel, it's all right. Go ahead and tell me. So Daniel jumps right in. Verse 22, your majesty, you are that tree. Verse 24, this is the interpretation, your majesty, and this is the decree the Most High has issued against my Lord the King. You'll be driven away from people, and you will live with the wild animals who eat grass like an ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass for you until you acknowledge the Most High as sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth, and He gives them to anyone He wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Now notice this. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. This is not part of the dream. Now Daniel's saying, I'm going to give you some advice. Renounce your sins. Repent by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be then that your prosperity will continue. In other words, you may avert this judgment. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. The second thing about pride, though, is that pride makes you resist the message of God. Look at verse 29. Twelve months later. Twelve months later after what? After the vision was interpreted, after the dream was interpreted. Twelve months later, Nebuchadnezzar is worshiping and praising God that he avoided the judgment. No. As the king was walking on his roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, is this not the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power for the glory of my majesty? Again, 12 months have gone by since the dream from God. But Nebuchadnezzar did not act on that divine revelation, undoubtedly. I mean, he was terrified by it. He's shaken in his boots, undoubtedly. He thought about it for days, if not weeks. But it never, he never got to the place of repentance. Why is that? Well, because of pride. See, at first, pride delays repentance. I know I need to. I know God has spoken to me. But pride says, just kind of put it off. Think about it a little while. Maybe it's not as bad as you think. And then pride makes excuses for disobedience. And then pride rationalizes sin. And finally, pride makes you completely insensitive to God's voice. You don't hear the promptings anymore. At a certain point, Pride will take you so down low that you won't be able to hear God anymore. Now, that's 
God, God's not bothered by that. He's going to keep working in your life whether you can hear Him or not. You know how He does that, right? He loves you so much that when you get to that point in your life, God will start using difficult circumstances and suffering to get your attention because He loves you so much. Third thing, pride makes you resist not only the message of God, but the messenger of God. God loved Nebuchadnezzar so much, he sent a messenger to warn him in the person of of Daniel, but he ignored the messenger. God does the same thing to us, though. He loves us so much that he sends people into our lives, messengers, if you will, to encourage us or to warn us. But we often don't see them as messengers. Oh, that's just aunt so-and-so, you know. It's just my mom or my dad. It's just a, you know, it's just a co-worker. It's just somebody I know at, know at church. So we, you know, we po- politely acquiesce and, and listen, but we do not act. We appreciate their concern, but we think, you know, yeah, they're kind of overstating it. Maybe they're a bit narrow-minded. Ah, they're legalistic. Or maybe they didn't come to us in a right spirit. I'd rather have somebody come to me in the wrong spirit if I need to hear from God. Go ahead. But whatever, we have a tendency sometimes to ignore the messengers that that God sends us. Daniel pleaded with Nebuchadnezzar to accept his advice to repent, to do right, be kind to the oppressed, and, and in order to kind of stay off the judgment. But Daniel's advice, Daniel's encouragement was ignored. Nebuchadnezzar was, in essence, rejecting the kind warning from God that came through the messenger Daniel. Not unlike Paul's kind warning to everyone in Romans 2. Do you see how wonderfully kind and tolerant and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that His kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? His kindness leads to repentance. We sang it this morning. It was the third song. That's what the whole third song was about. Did you realize when you're singing, He is good, He is good? You know what you were singing, He is good, is about? Romans 2.4. He's so good. He's so good to us when we don't deserve it. He's so merciful to us that His kindness is so magnificent, it leads us to repentance. Nebuchadnezzar presumed on that kindness, though, and that patience of God. And as the weeks passed, the the promised judgment did not manifest, and so he thought, you know, maybe I just had a bad dream. There was an 18th century Welsh evangelist who told a story that kind of illustrates how Nebuchadnezzar came to ignore such a a frightening warning from God. He he tells a story about a blacksmith in in a small village who had taken in a a stray pup, much to the chagrin of all the other shop workers around, because every time he would strike the anvil or a horseshoe with that hammer, that clang, the dog would violently bark in rhythm all day long. As time went on, however, the barking became quieter and less frequent. Until one day, while the blacksmith was just hammering away at the anvil, There was the dog asleep by the fire. 
as if he was unable to hear. In the same way, Nebuchadnezzar had grown accustomed to the hammering of God's Word to the point where he was unable to hear. Twelve months later, remember, he said in verse 4, contented and prosperous. He said, is this not the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Even as those words were coming out of his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken away from you. You'll be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You'll eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge the Most High as sovereign over all the kingdoms on the earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Now, in these verses, we see our second and third point. We see the heart of pride and the consequence of pride. The heart of pride, of course, is encapsulated in that one sentence. Is this not the great Babylon I have built by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Now, when we take that and we kind of translate that into our lives, pride is that which looks at the good things in our lives and say, I did that. I accomplished this or that. This happened to me because of my effort because of my abilities, because of my diligence, I accomplished this. Now, outside of the intervention of the grace of God, this is the disposition and inclination of the human heart. We easily fall under the delusion that we are somehow responsible for what we have, what we achieve, or any good fortune that comes into our life. We fail to recognize that anything we have is from God. Any achievement that we achieve is only because God has given us and graced us with abilities and talents. When things go well in your life, pride causes you to say, well, it's because because I worked harder than anybody else. I worked smarter than than anybody else. I've been more, more diligent or I've been more ethical. I mean, I followed the rules. I did it the way that you're supposed to do it. I did it the right way. It's because of me. And therefore, I deserve the good that has come my way. I deserve the success or recognition or respect or prosperity or good, whatever good fortune is. It's because of me. See, pride looks at life with this very deep sense of being owed of always being owed. So when your life is going well, it's because it's what you're owed. It's because of what you've done. It's because of how you lived. It's because of you. It's what you deserve. Okay, then, well, what about when things are going badly, when things are not working out? Well, then pride says, why am I not getting what I deserve? Why is this happening to me? This shouldn't be happening to me. This isn't fair. That's pride. See, so whether things are going good or whether things are going bad, pride makes you look at life and say, I deserve this or I deserve better. Now, humility is just the opposite. Humility says, I'm not owed anything. Humility says, I don't deserve anything. Every gift, 
Every blessing, every amount of goodness or good fortune in my life comes from the hand of God and is a gift of God, James 1.17. Every, every, say every, every, gift, it comes from the Father above. Every. And every means in the Greek, every. Now, if God gave me what I deserve, you know what? I would be, I'm speaking for myself, I don't know about you guys. I would be under his condemnation and destined for hell because I sinned against him a lot. Instead, I am under his blessing and I'm destined for heaven because of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, practically, you know what that means? No matter how bad things would get in my life, it's still better than what I deserve. Now listen, no matter how bad things get in our culture, it's still better than we deserve. If as a sinner I got what I deserved, I'd get divine judgment. Instead I have the, you know what? I have the gift of forgiveness, I have eternal life, I have peace with God, I have the peace of God, I have the joy of the Lord, I've got the promise that nothing will ever separate me from His love, I've got the promise that there is this whole like inheritance awaiting for me in heaven that won't spoil or fade away, I've got the promise that for millions and millions and millions and millions of years, I will be the recipient of God's exceeding grace. Every good thing in my life, both spiritual and natural blessings. I mean, from the promise of eternal life all the way down to that breath right there. That breath. It's a gift to God. And you know something about gifts? Gifts are always things more than you deserve. Because if you deserve it, it's payment. The gift ceases to be a gift, does it not? It becomes a payment, right? When somebody gives you a gift, you don't go, it's about time. <laughs> right? Like, what took you so long? Well, there goes, the, it's not a gift anymore, isn't it? It's a, it's a payment, isn't it? Yeah? No, if you get a gift, what happens to you if you get a gift? You're what? Pleasantly surprised. Uh, you're, you know, you're, you're, you're joyful and you're even humbled, depending, you know, on what the gift is. See, that's what gifts do. So if I'm living life as if it's a gift, there's going to be a lot of just pleasant surprises. I woke up this morning. I woke up. There's, a, there's the one, first one right there. And I could go on. You get it. I'm thinking about this as I'm driving to church today. I'm, I'm thinking about, I'm driving down the road, and I'm, all of a sudden it's just occurring to me all the things that I take for granted that I could be that I'm usually not thankful about. I just kind of like, okay, it's life, right? We're so calloused in this area to be truly grateful and thankful for every good gift. So, so pride operates with a deep sense of being owed. Humility operates with a deep sense of being gifted. Pride, deep sense of being owed. Humility, deep sense of being gifted. Which brings us to the consequence of pride. And this is going to 
That was the heart of pride. Now we're going to talk about the consequence of it. And this is going to take a little, little explanation. In fact, let me give you an illustration to start this one out. Let's say, let's say I go to a really big art show at a major gallery, and while nobody is looking, I step over that burgundy-colored velour crowd barrier and make my way up to this, this masterpiece, and I check left and check right, and then I scribble my name over the artist's signature. And then I turn around and stand by the painting, right? And as people are walking by, they're going, oh, what a wonderful work of art. Are you the artist? Of course I am. I'm standing by the painting. Isn't it beautiful? Thank you. Thank you for that. Now, now what's wrong with that? Well, what am I doing? I'm taking credit for somebody else's work. That's what pride is. It's taking credit for what God has created, what God has given, what God has done. You see what pride does? It makes you an imposter. If I was Nebuchadnezzar, I would say, is this not the great painting that I have painted for my own glory and majesty? I'm an imposter. But pride is worse than that. It's worse than taking credit for what God has done. Pride is actually taking the place of God. You say, how so? Ephesians 2.10 says we are God's workmanship or we are God's um, handiwork created in Christ Jesus for good works. Handiwork, workmanship, whatever. The Greek word there um, is, is poema. And it means something made or something composed. It's used of art. If the word sounds familiar, you're right. It's where we get the word poem from. So we are God's... Come on, Greek class. Let's go. <laughs> we're God's poem, right? We are God's work of art. The New Living Translation says we're God's masterpiece. We're God's painting created in Christ Jesus. You know what that means then? He's the artist. We're the painting. And when we take credit for anything in our lives, we are what? We're usurping the great artist. We're not the artist. It's like when we take credit for something, we're, we're not just being imposters. We are being usurpers by trying to take the paint and the brush away from God, saying, I'll be the painter of my own life. I will. Ooh, that sounds familiar. I will be like the Most High. I will paint. But pride does more than make you an imposter or a usurper. Pride makes you less than God designed you to be. Pride distorts that creator-creation relationship with you have with God, and it makes you think that you're the one that's in control of your life instead of God. Pride also distorts the father-child relationship and lessens your dependence as a child upon God. So you were created by God to enjoy God, to be dependent upon God, to obey God, to glorify God. And when you depart from that design because of pride, you become, you become less than God designed humans to be. If you go back to, to Psalm 8, it's a great sentence there that says, What is man that thou art mindful of him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels. So you get the hierarchy of, of God's creation here. You have creator God, and then below that, far below, you have the angels, 
and then we are just a little lower than the angels, and then you go way, way, way down, and you get to, you get to the animals, right? Well, see, what humility does is it lifts us up and gives a vision of God. What pride does is it causes us to look down and become more like the animals below us immediately. Verse 33, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people, and he ate grass like an ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. Now, why did God deal with Nebuchadnezzar this way? God, you know God never does anything arbitrarily. He always does things with a specific purpose in a specific way. And so, why did he judge Nebuchadnezzar, discipline him for his pride this way? Why does he give him uh, uh, the mind of an animal? Why does he humble him by removing his mental capacities? Well, for sure, because Nebuchadnezzar thought it was his mental capacities that made Babylon so great. And so, God's going, okay, how great are you now? But really, why does God remove his mental capacities by causing, he could have done that a thousand different ways, but he does it one way. What does he do it? By causing him to live as a animal. Because God is saying, this is what pride does. It destroys the way I've created you and makes you more like the animals. When we refuse to honor God's glory, we lose some of the glory that God has given us by being made in his image. And so God was saying to Nebuchadnezzar, because you insisted on trying to become more than a man, you will become less than a man. Because you insisted on being more than what I made you, you will become less than what I made you. And if pride goes unchecked, eventually it makes us more like the animals. I mean, this is certainly true morally speaking, and that's the whole concept, by the way, of Romans chapter 1. Romans 1 says that when people reject God, they become more animal-like. Why? Well, if there is no God, right, then there is no creator, and then there is no standards by which the creator by design created us to live with, and without standards, sin causes us to devolve three ways, Romans 1 tells us. The first level is sexual impurity. The second level is sexual imperversion, sexual perversion. The third level is a debased mind. And literally, in the Greek text, it means a mind that cannot function as a mind. You mean like Nebuchadnezzar's mind? Do you see the connection here? But this de-evolution into animal-like behavior starts very subtly. You know, pride... This doesn't come and wreck us right away. It, it comes in really stealthily. In the first stage is pride makes us less than God designed us to be by, by numbing um, our capacity for empathy and for compassion. Right? It numbs that in us because it's impossible to see pain and hurt and, and to feel that hurt in others' lives when you're simply thinking about yourself. Pride steals that away from you. There's no way to sorrow with those who sorrow. Pride takes it away from you. Pride also limits one's desire to serve others. 
Because pride won't let you spend time and resources on anything that doesn't directly or indirectly benefit you. Because it's all about you. So pride says, you're not going to be a servant. Thirdly, pride says, or actually reduces or removes our ability to genuinely rejoice with those who rejoice. Why? Well, when something good happens to other people, you're there, but inside you're going, why isn't this happening to me? How about me, God? When's my time? See, and, and, and if that's, you know, the, the disposition or anything close to it, you're not really rejoicing. It's a facade. You've been, you have had stolen away from you one of the great joys of the Christian life, and that is to rejoice with those who rejoice or sorrow with those who sorrow. You can't feel empathy. You can't rejoice with others. You have no interest in serving. That's what pride does. And I could go down more. Four, five, six, seven, eight. We don't have time. But you, I, I just want you to get the point that you could see how destructive, how absolutely destructive pride is way more than we actually realize. So I would conclude from that that anything God does to rescue us or save us from pride would be a good thing, a loving thing, a gracious thing, a merciful thing, even, 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 if it's what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. How does God save us from pride? One answer, mercy. God's word of judgment was fulfilled in Nebuchadnezzar, but it was tempered. Do you notice that? With a promise of, of mercy. And without that mercy, without God's mercy, we could never be healed from the effects of our pride. It's only God's mercy that pierces our pride so we see it, turn to Him and repent. Daniel said seven times will pass. Did you notice? Until you acknowledge, right? Until you acknowledge the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth. And that phrase, until you acknowledge, was a glimmer of light in a very, very dark tunnel. It meant that Nebuchadnezzar would acknowledge eventually that not himself, but God was the Most High and sovereign over all. The blindness of spiritual pride would be healed after seven times, Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar. Now, that could be seven years, and it could have been, or it could be simply the divine appointed amount of time, because seven in the Hebrew culture, seven was the number of completion. So it was a way of saying until the complete time had come. Now, whether it was seven years, five, three, it doesn't really make any difference. I mean, it definitely was a long period of time because, well, his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle. It takes a while for hair to grow. I know that. And it takes a while for those nails to become like the claws of a bird of prey, right? So it couldn't have been a few months. That wouldn't have even been a year. That had to be a few years down the road, right? Verse 34, at the end of that time, whatever it was, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven and my sanity was restored. 
And then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified Him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. Boy, that is a far cry from before. Remember before? Is this not the great Babylon I have built for my glory, for the glory of my majesty? Now it's just flipped all the way. No, it's Him. It's all about Him. It's about His glory. It's about His majesty. And he goes on in verse 35 and says, All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. Now that doesn't mean that people are worthless. What it means is this God is so magnificent, so great, so holy, so above, so beyond, that it's as if, if the people of the earth are nothing. He is so great and glorious. And then he goes on to say, um, no one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? Now, I want you to know something. I wish we had more time this morning. This is how you know Nebuchadnezzar got saved. Right here. No one can say to him, what have you done? As long as God is, as the old preachers used to say, in the box. In a courtroom, you have the the box. Who's ever being questioned is put into the box. As long as God is in the box, it's likely you're not saved. Salvation is evidenced by whatever He does is right. That's the manifestation of a heart that's been humbled and changed by God. said, my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor will return to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out. I was restored to my throne. Here's the miracle. Why didn't somebody else take the throne? This guy's gone for three, four, five, six, seven years. There's another miracle. God restored it to him, and his kingdom became greater than even before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven, because everything he does is right. And all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he's able to humble. You know, last week, we were reminded that the Bible is one book with a central story, the gospel, and one great hero of that story, Jesus Christ. And that story is told all the way throughout the Bible in the Old Testament and in the New Testament and in the book of Daniel. And a couple weeks ago, we found out, we saw Jesus revealed in Daniel 2 as that rock that was hewn out that will crush all the corrupt kingdoms of of the earth and that will one day rule in righteousness forever and ever. He is the rock of our salvation. In chapter 3, we saw Jesus revealed as the fourth man in the fiery furnace who enters into the judgment fires to save souls. This week, we see see Jesus again. You You say, how will we see him in Nebuchadnezzar? What? We see him as the exact opposite of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is a man 
who glorified himself by trying to become like God. Jesus Christ is glorious God who humbled himself by becoming a man. They're the exact opposite of one another. Let's run that through again. Nebuchadnezzar, a mere man. Jesus Christ, eternal, glorious God. Nebuchadnezzar glorified himself. Jesus Christ humbled himself. Nebuchadnezzar, he glorified himself by trying to become God. Jesus Christ was God, but he humbled himself by becoming a man. There's the gospel again in reverse in Nebuchadnezzar. Jesus is glorious God who humbled himself by becoming a man. Paul says this in Philippians 2, have the same mindset as the Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now, right here, this is where, this is where being saved from pride, being delivered from pride, being protected from pride begins right here, right here in these verses. It begins by remembering the gospel, by rehearsing the gospel. And that's what Paul is doing for the Philippians. And you know why he's doing that for them? Because there's lots of problems going on in that church. He was addressing, he says, their lack of tenderness, their lack of compassion, their lack of empathy, their lack of love, their lack of unity. And how does he do that? He says, first of all, you know what your problem is? Your selfish ambition, your pride. You know what the answer is? Humble yourself. Do you know what? That's a diagnosis and remedy for most of our problems, is it not? But how do you generate humility? I mean, you can't just will yourself. I will myself to be humble. You can't do that. In fact, it'll probably be prideful in your attempt to will yourself into humility. I mean, the moment you claim humility, what? You have pride. So it's not something that you can just like manufacture in yourself. So, well, so how can you be, how can you gain humility in your life? Well, you can't generate it yourself. It has to happen to you, doesn't it? Paul tells us in these verses, though, how it happens. How do you, how can you be humbled? I tell you how. You look at what Jesus has done for you. You look at it over and over, deeply, more closely. You understand it greater. You worship Him in the revelation of what He has done for you through Jesus Christ. You look at that cross on which He shed His blood for you. You, you look at Him as your Savior, as the one who rescued you from wrath and granted eternal life to you and has blessed you with every blessing in heavenly places and every blessing in this life comes through that cross. You begin to look at that. See, it's not about trying harder. It's about believing the gospel more deeply. It humbles you when you look at it, when you really look at the cross. I mean, when you really do, it humbles you like nothing else can. And see, that's how you become more humble. You don't become more humble by, by focusing on yourself and trying to generate humility. You get more humble by looking at what Jesus has done for you. When you understand what you deserved and what you got, what does that do? It naturally what? It humbles you. So Paul says, here's the answer to it. Just look to Jesus. Look to the gospel. 
Look to what he's done for you and make it a part of the way you think about everything. Have the same mindset as that of Christ Jesus who humbled himself, who loved you, who died for you. Nebuchadnezzar was a man who glorified himself by trying to become God. Jesus Christ is eternal God who humbled himself by becoming a man. And he had to become a man. Why? Otherwise, we would be eternally imprisoned in our pride. Jesus became a man because Jesus had to die. As eternal God, the Son of God, he could not die. And so God became a man for the express purpose of dying physically on the cross and on the cross. God took all the penalty for our pride, for all the pride we would ever have in our lives. And he put it on Jesus. He judged Jesus in our place for it. Jesus took the penalty. Jesus took the judgment. Jesus took the, the wrath for all of, the, all of my pride, all of your pride. He died. And then he rose again because there was no sin in him. He had done the work. He said, it is finished. And then he said, and whoever believes that shall not perish, but have everlasting life. If you're here this morning and you've never, I mean, officially accepted Christ, there never was a moment that you could say, yeah, I remember that day. And you may have been saved when you were a child and you don't remember the moment. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about you're an adult, you're here, you're interested in Christianity, you're exploring the, the, the claims of Christ. You know there's something missing in your life. You have a general love for God. You really believe that He's the creator over all things. You might even believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross 2,000 years ago for your sin, to forgive you. But you've never really believed. You've never, I believe. That's what I mean by Official. It's a bad word to use to describe that. But there's a moment. There's a divine interaction, an interchange. Coming to God, repenting of controlling my own life, of taking credit for things of my own life, and saying, no, you get credit for it all. Because you sent your son to die for me, and I believe that. If that's you, I want to lead you in a confession of faith this morning. You don't have to close your eyes, but you do need to direct this towards God, and you can do that right where you're at. I believe. Let's say it again. I believe in Jesus Christ, that he died on the cross for my sin, and that he rose again to make me a child of God. I have turned from my sin. I have believed in Christ. I am a child of God by faith in Him. From this moment forward, I'm a child of God. Amen and amen. Hallelujah. 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 All right. Daniel, come back next week. We'll take another swipe at this chapter. Let's all stand up like our prayer team to come up. If you need prayer for anything, we'll be up here after the service. Everyone else, if you can hang out in fellowship, do. If not so, safe travels. See you next week.